if 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 you're an afterthought, you're never going to be in the front of somebody's mind. When COVID hit, it sent a chilling message to those who have lived through the HIV epidemic, the last big one in the U.S., and know very well what can happen when governments ignore people in a health crisis and when poor countries can't afford the treatment. I'll give you a hint. By the end of 2019, the global death toll from AIDS was about 33 million people, and scientists estimate another 1.7 million people to get infected with a virus every year. That is what can happen. To help me understand what is at stake in this pandemic and the best lessons learned, I have the great, great honor to be joined by the remarkable Professor Greg Gonzalez, who left school to become one of the leading AIDS activists and became a self-taught expert on the ins and outs of how treatments are created and what pharmaceutical companies are up to. He carried the fight against the disease in South Africa later, decided to get his bachelor's degree at Yale in his late 30s and later a PhD, and received the MacArthur Genius Award. I'm your host Zoya Soroy and this is The Dive a show born out of the Harvard Kennedy School, where we bring you experts from Harvard, Yale, Brown, and beyond to break down the news for you super simply. I want to start with, if you can give us a brief summary of your remarkable work. So um, I have been working on infectious diseases for, I don't know, about 30 years or so. Um, and my uh, the start of my work was when I dropped out of college in the 1980s and when the AIDS epidemic hit in the United States. Um, and uh, I was coming out as a gay man and had people who I loved who were HIV positive and there's not a lot of um, hope for their survival. And so I joined a group called ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, um, which is a direct action uh, advocacy group, social um, mobilization in the United States and also abroad. The direct action group invaded the offices of drug companies and scientific labs, stormed St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, covered the home of Senator Jesse Helms in a giant condom, all in an attempt to force the country to address the AIDS epidemic. Um, and worked for um, several years with that group uh, in a quest to get faster approval of drugs from the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, uh, better treatments uh, through research to the National Institutes of Health, uh, uh, more um, equitable access to experimental medicines from the drug companies. And um, a lot of this work is talked about in a movie called How to Survive a Plague by David France that um, was nominated for Academy Award a few years ago. Plague! We are in the middle of a plague! 40 million infected people is a plague! Um, and continue to do work um, on access to AIDS drugs for a long time um, in the United States. And then in um, 2000, I was invited to South Africa to start working with a group called the Treatment Action Campaign um, because um, they were... Um, interested in using the tools that we developed and ACT UP, which was um, educating ourselves as non-scientists about the science of the disease, the treatments, um, to use it as a wedge for social mobilization in South Africa, which has the largest AIDS epidemic in the world. And so um, in, a, in the year 2000 or so, my efforts tilted towards um, access to AIDS drugs for, the, for everybody around the world, not just sort of what was happening in the United States. Um, 
And so really had a uh, 20-year career in access to AIDS medicines. In 2008, went back to school. Had never finished my undergrad and uh, got a college degree in my 40s at Yale. Um, ended up getting a PhD here as well. Um, and um, I'm now on the faculty of the Department of Epidemiology of Microbial Diseases at Yale. Um, I also run a program called the Global Health Justice Partnership with my friends Amy Kipchinski and Ellie Miller at the law school. Um, and over the past year, um, like many in my profession of infectious disease epidemiology, have been sort of corralled into working on COVID-19. Um, and like many of my comrades from the old AIDS days, um, uh, not just on the science of it, but the politics of it as well. And um, given all this work, I wanted to ask you, what was the first thought that came to your mind when we realized that um, COVID-19 wasn't going to be so much as a problem that only affects China, but um, it soon became everybody's problem as well? I think, um, you know, about a year ago today, we sent everybody home in our office. Uh, on the 10th of March, 2020, we closed our office and sent everybody home to work. This is before Yale University had shut down officially, um, but it was really um, the sign that we had entered a, a phase of a pandemic that not even those of us who went to the sort of age years could could understand. Um, but I think what's interesting is that um, people who went to that epidemic who, who or continued to sort of deal with it over the past 30 years were became on high alert right away, right? Um, whether it was what was happening locally in our communities, like here in New Haven or in New York City, where many of my friends are, um, it was clear that um, there needed to be some mobilization to get politicians to do what was right. You know, there's delays in what um, in shutting down New York City and New York State by Governor Cuomo and, and Mayor de Blasio. Um, you know, we could we could see what was happening in Washington D.C. with President Trump and Mike Pence um, at the helm of the effort against the new pandemic. So, I think everybody realized we were in for uh, a rough ride. And if we thought the AIDS epidemic was terrible in the United States, um, it was only uh, child's play compared to what we would see over the next uh, eight to 12 months. And um, certainly people were um, very happy by the scientific feeds that brought us the vaccine. And and um, people in the United States have plenty of reason to be happy about it. But that's not so much the case for everybody around the world. How would you characterize the situation with vaccines um, that we're seeing right now? Well, you know, the reason I moved to South Africa in the 2000s and why I became involved in access to AIDS drugs in the year 2000 was because there was a medical apartheid. In 1996, the, the treatment of HIV infection was revolutionized. It became a Uh, rather than a death sentence, it became a chronic manageable illness. While we were very actively clinically testing different combinations of drugs, we reached the point where, for the most part, the virus couldn't escape, that you kind of boxed it in. I was in the intensive care unit in a coma, and the doctors had given me less than 24 hours to live. I went on heart and got better, and... The rest, I guess, is history in the making. And um, I take pills today, starting in 1996, that have kept me sort of healthy and, and well for all these years. Um, but in the global south, um, nobody got access to these drugs. AIDS kills you if you're not if you're not on treatment. Uh, so in most of the world, people still die of this disease. And so we waged a struggle 
um, starting in the late 90s, early 2000s, to make sure that there was equity in access to medicines for, for HIV. And we um, did remarkable things. We helped to get the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria up and running. Um, we pushed the U.S. government to, 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 to be a big donor to the Global Fund and its own bilateral President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. But here we are again. As coronavirus vaccination programs get underway around the world, there are concerns growing that the poorest nations may be missed out or left to the very end of a very long queue for the um, resources. Now, you know, the President Biden said that he expects everybody to be vaccinated or be eligible for vaccination by May 1st in the United States and by Independence Day on July 4th, we can all um, potentially be happy and out and having 4th of July picnics in the United States. Um, if you're elsewhere on the planet, um, in Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, um, parts of Asia, parts of former Soviet Union, um, you are not going to get access to these vaccines anytime in, in, in 2021, maybe not even in 2022. In fact, um, most of the rich countries have gobbled up the current supply of these vaccines. Um, they have fought um, India and South Africa's appeals to the World Trade Organization to loosen the intellectual property rights. Poor nations are stepping up their fight for equal access to COVID-19 vaccines. They're trying to convince rich nations to support their request for a waiver on patent rights. They say acquiring vaccine knowledge could help them boost production of jabs. US President Joe Biden must now decide whether to change course and support the move. The US is one of several nations resisting the request at the World Trade Body, arguing it would discourage innovation. And even the UN's own um, mechanisms through Gavi and, and COVAX to get these vaccines out to, to people around the world is, you know, only a month ago they're saying 20% of the world's population in lower uh, middle income countries might have a chance of getting these vaccines this year, which is completely unacceptable from a moral stance, right? If anybody told you that, you know, only 20% of somebody in New Haven, Connecticut or Cambridge, Massachusetts was going to get access to these vaccines this year, there would be um, a hue and cry and, and people screaming bloody murder. But apparently 20% of the population of poor countries or even less getting access to them is not a big deal for, for, for apparently for many global leaders around the world. The unfortunate thing is this is not just a moral failing, it's an epidemiological one because this virus will continue to replicate in millions of people around the world and spew out new variants, right? And new variants may be fine. They may be just um, slightly different than the current forms of the virus circulating around the globe, but we could have new variants that emerge that um, uh, rendered the vaccines we have right now less effective or ineffective, that could be more deadly, um, that could, um, uh, for people who've had natural infection, uh, offer the chance of being reinfected. And so unless we sort of vaccinate everybody around the world, none of us is safe. And so um, this has all been about me, 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 and my country first. Um, but unless we take care of everybody else, um, the virus is still out there to come back to haunt us. And w what do you think are the lessons, especially since so much work, you've managed to mobilize so much work and involve so many parties when it came to HIV? What do you think are the lessons from that crisis that are being ignored right now? Well, one is is that um, our government um, poorly served us during the AIDS crisis. This is a clip showing a journalist asking Reagan's deputy press secretary the first public question about AIDS.
that we delayed our reaction to it in the United States for years and years and years um, so that we have an endemic disease uh, uh, in the United States with HIV still uh, a huge problem in many places across this country. The state of Florida accounts for 10% of all HIV cases in America, and it is home to four of the top 10 cities in the U.S. for new HIV diagnoses. While the state has begun an ambitious plan to tackle the crisis, it has also cut health spending for years. Um, we saw our country that dragged its feet, feet again in the United States um, for COVID-19, letting you know over 500,000 people now die from this disease. So we've had political inattention uh, uh, in the most charitable way of describing it and political negligence and political malice, um, uh, if you want to talk about it in, in its true sense from what happened last year. Um, we let people die. We let people die. And uh, even in the context of having a vaccine, um, which we were lucky to get, uh, or AIDS treatments, you know, 25 years ago, which we were lucky to get, um, the crisis isn't going to be over until we have a political solution to make sure that everybody gets access to um, uh, the vaccines that we've been talking about, right? We have the scientific achievement now. We have the scientific solution here in, in, in the fact that we have multiple vaccines that can prevent uh, disease uh, and potentially prevent transmission for SARS-CoV-2, um, but we don't have the political will to get it out to the people who need it across the world. And so um, we may be living with this virus or, or different forms of coronavirus for a very long time to come because we decided it wasn't worth sort of investing in um, in addressing uh, COVID-19 across the planet. It only mattered about what happened at home in our own states, cities, countries. And if the United States thinks that, fine, we have the vaccines, we're in a fast path to vaccinating everyone, it's going to be done within the year. Um, let us um, extinguish this fire first and then um, sort of devote our full attention to helping out other countries. What is fundamentally wrong with that strategy? Well, you know, one is, is like promises, promises, right? Um, you know, the point is we'll get you eventually, right? Um, essentially, it's putting... Uh, black and brown people to the back of the bus, to the back of the line, um, which means that we don't care if, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people die around the world. Um, we're going to get our people uh, settled first um, and we'll think about you later. But, you know, what happens this summer once everybody's back to normal, the political pressure to do anything for the rest of the world becomes far, far, le far less acute, right? The impetus to sort of um, deal with global COVID vaccination pales into the, uh, compared to the other sort of social and economic ills we're going to have to sort of deal with in the United States in the, in the years ahead in wake of the pandemic. And so um, wh what happens is that, um, you know, by saying we'll take care of you eventually means we may never take care of you. Um, Because there's always going to be a crisis. Once the vaccination is over, then there's going to be the economy, then long-term effects of of those uh, suffering. Yeah, yeah. If if, the, if you're an afterthought, you're never going to be in the front of somebody's mind. Yeah, and um, a lot of people have referred, or a lot of experts have referred to the current shortage of vaccines as a false scarcity. Um, why is that so? What does it mean? So many people, including even the former CDC director, uh, Thomas Frieden, 
have said we could scale up mRNA vaccines, the the template for the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, fairly readily if we had tech transfer and the, the political will to do so. Um, so basically, we're saying we will let the companies decide how much vaccine gets made and who it gets to and how much they're going to pay for it. Right? We've bet, we're basically let the market decide. Um, it is completely possible, maybe not today, um, to, to scale up mRNA vaccine production, um, but we could do it within the next 6 to 12, 18 months. Um, and we've decided not to, right? Um, and uh, we've been told the companies will get around to supplying for Sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia or South Asia um, or other countries in, in the global south. Um, and we're just going to have to wait. The point is, is that we need tech transfer now. Um, we need the U.S. government to step in and say, we gave you money to make these vaccines. These vaccines weren't made out of the, the sort of generosity of the investors of Moderna and Pfizer. The U.S. government pumped billions of dollars into vaccine development. Moderna took a huge amount of public money, up to $4 billion from the U.S. government. And I'm gladly so. But now it's time for them to get back. And giving back doesn't mean giving, making us, charging us $100 for, for a dose of a Moderna vaccine uh, and telling everybody else to wait until... Uh, you know, the people who can pay the most money have acts, uh, have fulfilled their, their their need for the vaccine. So we can scale up production of, of the mRNA, vaccine, mRNA vaccines, probably the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Johnson has already has talked about potentially doing tech transfer to India, which is a great sign, but Moderna and Pfizer can do the same thing, and they just won't. Um, and it's unacceptable. They're creating scarcity in the face of terrible, terrible human suffering, um, and there's no rationale for it. And so um, then practically how this was, would work, if I'm understanding you correctly, is the companies that have developed the vaccines, such as Pfizer, etc., can identify other pharmaceutical companies around the world who they think that have the capacity to build the vaccine and can share the knowledge with them. So, so yes. So Pfizer and Moderna can say... Um, and in cooperation with the U.S. government, for instance, um, can work to say, hi, we've identified a company in South Africa and Brazil and India and Thailand. Um, they don't have the machinery and the capacity today to do it, but we think they're great candidates for it. U.S. government can say, we're going to invest some money. And Pfizer and Moderna, you're going to go and you're going to do tech transfer and supervise the, the construction of the plants, the initial production of vaccines, etc. Completely possible to do, would not break the bank. Um, and you'd leave us with a uh, international infrastructure to scale up mRNA vaccines for the next pandemic as well. So it's just it's not um, it's it's not a, a wild and crazy idea. It's not asking for anything that's that's sort of untoward or impossible to do. It's just a question of having political will to do it. Mm -hmm. And. Um... Uh, the way I see it, I mean, the vaccine companies and the way you explained, the vaccine companies themselves don't really have any incentive to go out there and do this by themselves. So you really require the the push from the government. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, companies are there to make money for their shareholders, right? Um, but in a public health crisis, we need to ask them to do more, right? And, you know, um, this is why South Africa and other countries are asking the WTO to think of a waiver, a TRIPS waiver in this context for some of the intellectual property protections around the, the vaccines. But, you know, if Moderna can sell their 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 
their vaccines to the highest bidder, you know, there's very little incentive to, to produce them at cost at a, at a, at a, a third party's factory um, when, you know, just over time they can en enlarge their share of the market, um, but over the bodies of millions of dead people, basically. And, you know, this was a problem from the very start and it wasn't unexpected. I mean, like you said, Moderna can can sell it to the highest bidder. The highest bidder is not going to be Bangladesh. It's going to be the United States and and, and other countries. Um, were there concerns before? Were there? Did anybody say, "Hey, once the vaccine is developed, let's let's make sure that that things don't uh, uh, lead to what's happening right now where rich countries are hoarding vaccines and yep doctors without borders medicine some frontier um oxfam unaids um of all call for a people's vaccine this has been going on for for over for months and months and months now saying when the vaccine comes out um it's going to have to be done at cost the it's going to have to be um part of a uh, uh, public um, production package so that it can be widely distributed around the world, that all the sort of R&D costs need to be transparent. All Everybody saw this coming a mile away. Anybody who worked in access to medicines for the past 30 years could see it happening um, from the very start. As soon as you started talking about global vac uh, Operation Warp Speed, everybody was saying, Operation, Operation Warp Speed for whom, right? Um, mm. And say the U.S. government um, says, okay, fine, um, we're going to do this. They're yielding to the public pressure and they go to the vaccine companies, but the vaccine companies don't agree to it. But you need their help. And so, like you said, you can't just take away their patents and produce it yourself. So what, what happens then? So you need the pressure of the president of the United States, of world leaders around the world to say, look, um, one is, um, you know, you have a, a, a moral duty to do this. You have, uh, you've taken our money to develop your vaccines and we're going to, we're going to pressure you to do it. It's, it's a political decision and political pressure needs to be exerted upon Moderna and Johnson and Johnson and Pfizer and the rest. Um, and they'll go kicking and screaming, but you know what? They went kicking and screaming mm -hmm. around AIDS drugs as well. Um, you know, and the point is, is that, you know, when Nelson Mandela was standing up on a podium in 2000, along with Bill Clinton saying, this was medical apartheid. Um, the, the global pharmaceutical industry took, took note. Um, and, um, you know, we finally were able to procure generic production of AIDS drugs, which saved millions and millions of lives. In this case, we do need more cooperation from the industries themselves, but this is going to be a case of putting political and public pressure on them at a, at a, at a level that, um, can, can, um, help them to, to see the light. The other thing is that they don't necessarily have to do this for free. Um, you know, the U.S. and other donor countries can underwrite the production of the factories and all the sort of other sort of infrastructure costs of it um, and even give them some sort of royalty for um, uh, the tech transfer or for, for um, uh, licensing their, their, their vaccines to other companies. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in the end, the companies are going to have to... to, to relent and realize that um, putting profit over people's lives is just not untenable in the midst of a pandemic. I mean, in the current climate, um, where we need not only the president of the, of the United States, but other world leaders, 
it doesn't seem too optimistic because you see countries like um, the UK fighting with Germany over over the AstraZeneca vaccine. How how likely is it that this coalition is going to happen in the current year? I think it's going to happen. I think because it's a necessity, right? It's not just sort of a nice thing to do. Epidemiologically, we don't want variants sort of replicating across the planet for 2021, 2022, 23, etc. Johnson and Johnson is already talking to an Indian company about um, making its adenovirus vac- vector vaccine, right? So there's already discussions with some companies seeing that the next wave of this is to supply the world, um, and you know maybe the 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 um, the price is right in terms of what the licensing agreement is between you know Johnson and Johnson and this putative deal with this Indian company. Moderna and Pfizer are going to have to come along. Uh, the question is how long it's going to take, under how much pressure, uh, and how many people are going to be dead before it happens. So it's a very popular cause. When you start to think about the the injustice of, of um, vaccinating your your own population and leaving the rest to sort of fend for themselves, it becomes sort of um, untenable, and it becomes even worse when you start to think of the fact that this is not about um, uh, just charity alone. It's the fact that um, if you don't stamp out this virus all over the planet you don't stamp it out anywhere yeah professor gonzalez thank you so much um for being a guest on the dive i'm from kosovo so this hits very much home no um, it, it's it's important it's just we know we know that southeast yeah. europe you know when you think of europe and access to these vaccines it's going to be the rich countries in northern europe and Western Europe, are they going to get them first, right? So yeah. Kosovo matters. Um, all of the nations in Southeast Europe matter, and they matter as much as the United States or Great Britain or France does. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Dive. If you support our mission of bringing you the world's foremost experts to explain the world right now, then please subscribe and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Dive Podcast.